This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Hi, I'm Andy Bradshaw, and in this podcast series, I'll be having conversations about supporting coaches to deliver great coaching. Today on the podcast, we welcome Sarah McQuaid. Good morning, Andy. Who's coming to us from the United States of America, so thank you very much for finding the time this morning for you, this afternoon for me. I wonder if we could just start with a little bit of your background and history into sort of where you're at now, where you are now. Well, I'll try and make a lot of years quite short. Originally a PE teacher, had always coached, didn't particularly like teaching children in the school's environment, so moved quickly into lecturing. Whilst lecturing, did a lot of work as a consultant with awarding bodies in London around qualification development, curriculum development, resource development. So had really started to get some expertise in the design and delivery of sort of vocational education. And... At the point, just around the 2000s, when the UK government were investing a significant amount of money into professionalising the industry of coaching, Sports Coach UK were looking for an education and training manager. So I made the leap from formal education into coach education and spent the bulk of the years at Sports Coach UK alongside Warwick Andrews, leading the technical development of the UK coaching certificate. And once we had built the framework and got the government sort of sign off for that, I made a leap into becoming a consultant and set up ETC Coaching Consultants. And since that point, I've spent the last 15 years working with an eclectic mix of organisations, both in the UK and now in the US and overseas. And, and all of the work I've done is sort of all things coach development from sort of coaching systems leadership designing coaching programs, developing the coach developer. So that's really, that's sort of the potted history and um, not a linear journey and one that you couldn't really navigate too easily. Right, not linear. Um, we've, we've had that mentioned most mm. all of the people I've spoken to so far. So I suppose maybe a, a start question around supporting coach learning and development. That will be a strand that comes through all of those things that you just described, and I'm sure is yeah. is at the forefront of what you do now in your work. Can you give a feel for what really works for you and for the coaches that you work with? That's evolved as I've gotten older and worked across more and more organisations. And what I do now is really geared by what organisations believe they want. So there's a lot of checking and challenging that I do from a best practice perspective, from an evidence-based perspective. But really, I try and customise it around either the organisation's need, the coach developer's needs, or the coach's needs. So I spend a lot of time up front really establishing an organisation's why before I dive in and, and, and try and help with either a coaching systems leader hat on, a coach developer hat on. My dear friend and colleague, Linda Lowe, has a, a line that she uses frequently. It depends. And again, what I do really just depends on who I'm working with. You mentioned that that's evolved and it's probably been part of 
coming from your experience and your mm-hmm. journey. If you were to sum up your philosophy around developing coaches, how would you describe that? You know, it's interesting, and given the kind of the, the background that I have in kind of the formal education piece and the expertise that I brought to the development of the UK coaching certificate, we adopted a very kind of formal, quite generic approach, because that was governed by what the government wanted at the time, which was this professional qualifications framework. And I think it was Penny Crisfield who was on the sub-delivery group who said that the quality of coaching that falls out of the UK coaching certificate will only be as good as the quality of the learning we design, the quality of the people that facilitate that learning, and the quality of the evaluation that goes on. So we invested then as much time developing the framework for coach developers and let that read tutor, assessor, verifier and mentor and we divorced those roles because that's really what the formal qualifications industry required at the time and and I think divorcing those roles was really useful for some people who were picking up isolated roles but it was a huge ask for those people who were wearing numerous hats within the same organisation But again, that's changed and particularly moving to the States where, you know, sort of the whole concept of coach coach education is is lagging, I think, behind the UK. It's very difficult. I certainly don't impose these discrete and divorced roles. I try and create something that's going to help take the organisation forward based on where they're currently at. And again, the role of the coach developer that we're looking to build with these organisations, there is. The point about people playing different roles, I think across coaching, mm. you, know, you very rarely just play one role at a time. Normally you may be doing some coaching, you might also be doing some coach developing, you might be doing some coach educating. One thing I've touched on with some of the other guests on the podcast has been around identity and how that changes and how that yeah. um, what you see as your role and function. and do, Does that change? how you work and how you want to be perceived how would you unpick that identity piece with the different roles that you play god what a really good question andy and again the identity and again i'm quite lucky because i get to kind of compare and contrast where i was 20 years ago and where i am now and i think 20 years ago i had a fairly rigid approach to education sort of having migrated from this formal education world and And it's interesting, I find myself now in the same space in the US that I was in 20 years ago in the UK. But the lovely thing is now I have all of this expertise that I can use uh, that I didn't have 20 years ago. Um, So, you know, the expertise allows me, I think, to flex my identity based on where those organisations are at, where they believe they want to head, what they believe they need. And I think I have a level of confidence that I didn't have before that allows me to check and challenge their trajectory, their direction of travel. Because remember, there's no central lead agency in this country who is driving a standardised approach across all governing bodies. That just doesn't exist. So I am sort of fairly reliant on bringing best practices by which have been sort of informed across 20 years to independent organisation and using what I believe is relevant to help move them forwards 
So again, the, the identity will change depending, Linda's line again, depending upon the organisation and also depending on the role I'm playing. Do you sense that's also changed coming out of education a bit more into developing people possibly now? Mm-hmm. Have you sensed that has softened an approach or mm-hmm. just enabled you to flex a little more? Yeah, and again, I go back to the expertise was really in formal education and working with the masses. So designing qualifications for, I don't know, 30,000 GNVQ students as were. And I never really had spent the time working with individuals to develop discrete skill sets. And that's where I spend, I think, a lot of the most enjoyable time that I have now is helping people. You know, and the lovely thing is, is sort of not not being an American by birth and having lots of this different expertise, I, I can get away with quite a lot. And I'm really candid about the fact that I'm not a technical expert in their sport, so I bring, you know, no threat from a sport-specific perspective. But I do bring lots around the coaching process. I am now confident enough to ask the awkward question that will help coaches think differently about how they do what they do so that they can do it differently and better. And I'm really happy to invest the time in those coaching conversations just to help coaches think critically and honestly about where they're at and where they might want to go. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things that really connect. You described it as an awkward question. Sometimes we would describe it maybe as that. You've been able to ask the naive question that if you are an expert from the sport, you probably shy away from asking because there's that expectancy that you should know that. Mm. Um, and it's something we touched on with Karen a little bit in terms of working outside of your own sport mm. possibly gives you more freedom to go places that you might not go to if you are from that sport. Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. And I think Dave talked about this on his podcast in terms of relationship first before you can get into sort of any learning and development weeds. And I think he's absolutely right. So if you can invest the time in building the one-to-one relationship, you can get away with far more. And again, once I've built the relationship, and I, I then am I'm quite candid about being apologetically unapologetic about the level of stretch and challenge that I will integrate, because that's ostensibly why I'm there, is to help people develop. And I don't think people will develop unless they are challenged in the nicest sense of the word. So I can see you with your uh, inverted commas there with challenge. Can you give us a practical example of what that would look like or feel like when you're working with a coach? Probably the best analogy I can give you is not necessarily working with directly with coaches. It's with coach developers that I think I spend most of my time. And I think the biggest challenge that coach developers are currently facing in this country is how to retain the role clarity when they move from formal classrooms into practically based learning because there is a tendency for coaches acting as coach developers who've got 20 years conditioning as a coach to step onto court and default to type. So my biggest challenge then is to help them retain that sense of role clarity. We do a lot of micro-coaching on our coach developer courses and having the confidence to be able to step in 
and press pause with a coach developer who, as a coach, has got years of experience and hugely well respected, but having the confidence to step in and just challenge them to think in real time about how they're doing what they're doing. And again, that's where those lovely, awkward questions come into play. And some of the questions are, are downright closed and downright leading. And, and the questions will be, what hat are you wearing? And, well, what do you mean? Well, what are you doing? What words are you using at this moment? What are you trying to fix? Oh, I'm fixing their technique. Well, if they're fixing their technique with a view to ensuring that coaches can provide technically correct demonstrations, then that's entirely right and appropriate. But if they're spending all of their time fixing technique, again, it's the wrong hats and what we're not doing is maximising the learning. So that's a challenge I'm facing continually across all of the coach developer courses I've been delivering is role clarity. Some of the work that we do, the phrase that we'd use of what lens are you looking through? Bringing it to life, what hat are you wearing? What lens are you looking through? What shaping um, or influencing your view here. I do think that is one of the core challenges of when you're changing role from coach, mm-hmm. that identity piece again, changing role from what you've known for a mm-hmm. long time probably and your approach to some subtly but crucially different ways of working, mm-hmm. uh, stepping into that developer of coach's role. Anything else from those experiences? But I think those are real crucial ones in supporting people to understand what the coach developer role actually looks like from someone who supports them. Anything else from your day-to-day working that really helps you help them? Another good question. If I think about sort of the experiences here in the US, there is a very heavy emphasis in coach development on the what to coach, which is exactly the same problems that we faced years and years ago. The balance of learning was heavily skewed towards the tech tack, which again lent itself to confusion around role clarity. So I do now spend a huge amount of time looking at the quality coaching agenda. And when I think about the quality coaching agenda as it's sort of manifested within that coaching space, the coaching process skills that we started to integrate years ago in the UKCC Penny Criskill has sort of pioneered some of the really lovely conceptual use of the how to coach skills. And I fall back on those as evidence-based best practice and, you know, fall back on the use of visual resources, particularly in very safe, formal learning environments to allow coach developers to think slightly differently. Those are always my sort of go-tos, are the very simple visual tools. But one thing I have to be really mindful of is... How much I intervene within a, a kind of, you know, a closed door formal learning in course is incredibly different to how much I might offer when I'm watching coaches coach. And that has to be a negotiated conversation. There's something here around confidence and there's something here around timing. And I think balance would be the other thing I learned. Yeah. And so you'd mentioned... Linda using the, the phrase, it depends. Now, it will depend on the person who's in front of you and where they're at and what support they might need. Oh, you know, sure. would... I'm really good at asking the question before we start anything that says, how can I help you? What do you want me to notice specifically? Because I think my role is to help and really value out. So whilst I may have an agenda about what I've seen, what I've noticed, and what I think they can do better, that has absolutely got to be coloured 
from them in the first instance, both in terms of pre-framing any practice or any coaching, but also letting them provide the insight once we've finished. Linking to observation, so I explored it a little bit with Andrew around what you're looking at rather than looking for. And I wonder, do you sometimes find that when you start to look for things, you miss other things? Or do you tend to look at the whole first and then focus? What's your process there? It's a really good question. You know, and I think my eyes kind of like dart from here, there and everywhere. But again, the conversation beforehand, which is around what's the focus of their coach learning and development. I think historically, coaches have been unbelievably good at going into a session armed with some athlete goals. So they're very clear on what they want the athletes to achieve. What I don't think coaches are very good at is identifying specifically what they're going to do within that session to help the athletes learn. So I spend a huge amount of time before any session trying to draw out what's the focus for them, how are you going to help them learn. And then I think when I've got a really good sense of what I'm expecting to see and hear, I then can zone in on the specifics that they're looking at or that they're looking to develop or they want me to notice. Inevitably, there'll be lots of other bits and pieces I pick up. And lots of time I'm looking at the behaviours and the interactions and how well some of the communication lands with individuals and groups. We've used the phrase skillful neglect in trying to describe what you just mentioned there. You will notice lots of things, probably more than you Mm -hmm. are going to be able to feed back to any one coach at any one time. You have a process about prioritizing. Priority might be what the coach wants to get out of it. But if you've noticed something that is a priority for you, Mm. how do you weave that into the discussion? Yeah, I'm always looking for the domino because I think 20 years ago, I might have identified 95 things that I thought that they could fix. And actually, that's not right and it's not appropriate and it's neither use to man nor beast. But what I do now is to, again, it's big picture, it's little picture, it's sort of the macro, it's the micro. And I try and find the domino. So what's the one thing within their coaching armory that I can focus on that would have a very natural domino impact on lots of other coaching behaviours? You know, and that's taken years and years to spot I don't think I've got it completely right. But what I do know is I'm very clear going into any professional discussion of what it is I could potentially value add to their coaching. And inevitably, that professional discussion is hinged around what worked unbelievably well, what would be even better if, what would you do next time? And again, looking at the final question there is what success would look like. But if I don't hear that one thing that I think could make a phenomenal difference, I am brave enough towards the tail end of the conversation to pre-frame it with, if I could offer you one thing, I don't just sort of volley in this suggestion. It's informed by what I saw, what I heard, what the impact was on the athletes, what the impact could be on the athletes, what the domino impact could be, so that it's couched in such a way that you raise awareness and generate a little bit of buy-in to that as a solution that they could potentially take into the next session. But again, it's always the dominoes I'm looking for. And again, some of the dominoes are blindingly obvious. Some of them you've got to work really, really hard to find, depending upon the expertise level of those coaches.
And the coach developers, same really applies whether I'm looking at both. It's kind of a, a sort of a parallel skill set. So you've talked about coaching conversations, professional discussions. I mean, that I think is one of the key skill sets of a coach developer is to be able to have that really empathic, sense-making, uh, constructive, supportive conversation in a real safe space. But as soon as you describe it like that, it becomes something that's, that's really difficult. It's not something that comes easy to everybody. What bits of your experiences or bits of learning or bits of things that you've done have helped you to develop those conversational skills? apart from years of wisdom? Well, one is practice and one is sort of being brave enough to practice. And I remember years ago up in Sports Scotland, for me, professional discussion as a label sits much better when I am working within a formal learning environment. The coaching conversations are a better label when we're working informally. And I know I remember having a, a conversation with a chap years ago, one of the Scottish coach developers, who had been objectionable and awkward throughout the entire five-day course and in our professional discussion at the end I said there's one question I'm going to ask you I said I don't want to ask it I have to ask it I'm not sure how well it'll land I said but I'm going to take a leap and I said what's the impression you like people to take away from you and he looked at me and he went oh my god he said I have never thought about it he said but do they get objectionable bugger and I said yes I said, is that the impression you want them to take? No. How committed are you to want to address the legacy you're leaving fully committed? Which was a really nice way in, but it was sort of a brave question to ask. It really could have gone either way. But nowadays, the conversations I have, and again, you know, there is a fairly evolved base of knowledge around coaching, around people, I spend all of my gym time listening to podcasts and TED Talks all around the humanistic piece in terms of how to better connect with individuals, how to help individuals. Brené Brown, I am a huge fan when you start to think about the empathy pieces and, oh, I see you looking on your shelves. Yeah, it's moved. It was there. <laughs> ah, I watch how other people do it. I watch intently, and I steal all the time. You gave a nice example of, it's not necessarily a killer question, but it was a really <laughs> nice example of just getting that question that enables someone, almost like a light bulb moment. From your experiences, now I'm putting you on the spot a little bit now, but can you recall any other ones that genuinely you thought, actually, that really helped us make some progress in a situation that was a bit stuck, or maybe even just describe situations that you've been able to, to move forward by just asking a good question or a, or a really challenging question? Assuming that you've invested the hard yards in building the relationship, I think you could ask any question because there's a level of trust there. I ask lots of what questions, I ask lots of how questions, and again, with a solid relationship, I, I'm confident enough to ask the why. What were you thinking? What were you hoping? How well did you think this might land? Are all different ways of getting to the why did you do what you did? And that depends on how much time I've got and how much time I need to invest buoying somebody up. 
I think those questions, the what and how, will always get you to the heart of the matter. And I think what we've also got to be really good at is using some of our observations, the evidence-based observations, to help people think specifically. So if we want to draw them to an actual moment within a coaching session, we've got to be able to transport them back to that moment in that session. So a clever question relies on good observations, which might say, well, you were about 17 minutes into the session. Um, you were over in that corner of the field, and I noticed that. So you can kind of pre-frame it and give people some specifics. That's a really nice way of describing something because sometimes we would, you're working full-time with a coach and you may be in a well-resourced programme, you might use video to actually show oh, you know, what's sure. happening here. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people supporting coaches that won't have that capacity or ability. So being able to try and transport someone back to that moment. Would that be as simple as you making some notes, like pencil and notepad notes, just almost like a timeline? No, I do, and I'm pretty good at the timeline. And I remember years ago watching a cricket chat delivering a session, and it was tedious, if I'm honest. It was just kind of like show and tell. But having kept a really good timeline, I was able to say, how long was your introduction? At what point during your session did the first child put their hands on a bat? At what point into the session did they actually make contact with the ball? How many times did each child contact the ball? And then it was, well, on what proportion then were the children active compared to the length of the session? So that timeline, I think, is brilliant to help people manage how they work in the future in terms of maximising athlete learning time, particularly keeping a timeline on it. You know, the coach was like, what? Was it really? Yeah. The scribbles help. And it's data, isn't it? It's yes. non-judgmental facts about mm. how long did you think your introduction was? Well, I thought it was four minutes. Like, well, it was actually ten and you were talking the whole time and mm. the impressions on kids' faces were boredom. I'm very careful not to value judge. And I think the value judgments aren't just in the words that you use. They're also in the tone and tenor and the body language as well. So I try and be as neutral as I possibly can. And also, I'm waving a piece of paper at you now, but I, I will share any scribbles that I take and share them back with the coach to help with that critical reflection exercise. Because I need them to come to the conclusions and the value judgments about... God, yes, I was really long-winded. Yes, I need to get the kids far more active earlier. Yes, yeah. I need to give them much more touches on the ball. And then that leads you into that kind of action planning pieces. It's nice to hear describing timelining things, making notes, making observations, and being really open and honest about the phrases you used, I think, are ones that we would really encourage. This is what I noticed. Mm. Or these are some of the data points in a session is how long things took mm. having a conversation with one of my colleagues yesterday talking about transitions within a session and talking mm. about the impact that has on activity time mm. and coaches just generally aren't aware you know when you're sending your kids off for a drink and that takes three or four minutes if you do that four or five times in a session well that's a lot of time lost mm. are these just experiential things things that you picked up and learned and seen other people do where have you taken those things from? What's, what have been your sources of learning? 
I guess the scribbling has really come from the work that we did, the UK coaching certificate and the very heavy emphasis on generating evidence, both as a coach, as a tutor, as an assessor, particularly as an assessor. We designed assessor training programmes, we rolled them out across the country, we were challenging assessors to capture real-time, evidence-based observations, which were free of value judgment and heavy on the data. You know, so we had to really get quite good at practicing what we preach. So I think there was some learning that was developed then. And again, the pen and paper, it's quite crude and it's highly effective, assuming, of course, that you have got, you know, sort of different reference points to help colour the observations, whether those reference points are performance outcomes that are contained in a check sheet or whether those statements are what it is the coach wants to do in terms of their personal coaching goal to help the athletes learn. So there has to be something that informs the information that you've captured. Just picking up on the non-judgmental piece, Mm. how difficult do you find it in terms of managing yourself? Because we will always judge things. We'll always make internal judgments Mm. about what you're seeing and quite often those might be, well, this isn't very good. And then you have to be able to have a conversation with a coach that doesn't display all of that? How do you manage? Oh, it's interesting. When I used to teach skiing, and I could tell you how well somebody could ski by the way they carried their skis. They didn't even need to put their skis on before I had made a value judgment about their ski ability, which was hugely unfair. But it's interesting, if I go back to sort of qualifications that predated the UK coaching certificate, the assessment piece was like a bit of a cottage industry. So coaches would come in, they would undertake their coaching session, inevitably working in quite a simulated environment, working with their peers acting as quite compliant players. And if they were able to put all of the ticks in the box, the assessor would just historically say, stop, next. And I'm going like, whoa, hang on a minute. How fair is that? Because even if we're watching somebody who is competent against the range of those criteria I still think we've got an opportunity to work developmentally and help develop excellence beyond that competence bar I've always been quite invested in the the sort of the development concept whether it's a formal assessment whether it's a coaching practice or it's a conversation by the water cooler so that's really where it was coloured again by the formal education piece One final thing is, having been involved, being very kind with the years here, but having been involved for a while, what do you think you do differently now than maybe what you were doing 10, 15 years ago? It's tempting to say everything. And again, I think I mentioned this earlier, and I can't remember whether it's part of this recording or or a conversation we'd had beforehand, but I find myself in a similar space professionally in the US compared to where I was sort of 15 years ago in the UK. And what's really nice is that I have all of the expertise now that I wished I'd had 20 years ago. So what I am able to do is to draw upon the expertise to help US-based organizations adopt best practice from the get-go. Just being able to help them based on the learning, 
the trials and tribulations that other sports across the world have had, that, you know, you can bring all of these fabulous experiences to the doorstep of another sport and say, well, if you want to go down that route, you absolutely can, but do know this potentially might happen. I think there's another way to go. I am brave enough to use the anecdotal experiences, to use the evidence basis, to check and challenge organisations. And then if they decide they still want to create a pink elephant with blue toenails, then it's up to me whether I, I stay and choose to help them. But as I say, the, the expertise I've got, it's significant, particularly in terms of where the US is now. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for spending some time just talking through your experiences and your insight. Very much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I've really enjoyed chatting. You've been listening to episode five of the Coach Developer Conversations podcast. To check out the other episodes and for more ideas and resources to help you deliver great coaching, go to the ukcoaching.org forward slash resources webpage. Thank you for listening. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.